Hey, Peach Pod listeners, you missed us yet? Well, we miss you, but we've got a couple of treats for you coming up before we get back together for the legislative session in Georgia in 2017. The first one that you're hearing this week is my guest appearance on the Supreme Benchwarmers. So a couple of friends of mine, Michelle and Tori, do a fantastic podcast on legal analysis, and they had me on to talk a little bit about these recent recount efforts going on in some of the Midwestern states, uh, that we also talk about the Electoral College, and we talk about the 20-week abortion ban and six-week abortion ban bills that landed on John Kasich's desk this week. Um, so I'm guest starring on their show, so you're going to hear all of their music and all of their stuff, but we wanted to put it in our, in our feed for y'all so y'all get a chance to listen. And if you like their show, check it out, look it up on iTunes. It's called Supreme Benchwarmers and give them a rating and a review and share it with a friend. Um, So thanks a lot for tuning in to this special episode and we will talk to you again soon. Welcome to Supreme Benchwarmers, your number one podcast for easy and entertaining legal analysis. I'm Tori. And I'm Michelle. We have a special guest star today, Kyle Hayes. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, y'all. This is like the fulfillment of a lifetime dream. It actually is for Perfect. all of us. So. Yeah, because Kyle actually hosts our favorite podcast, Peach Pod. And so I feel like this is like mutual fanship going on. <laughs> yeah, so we finally have you on. Kyle, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I... Um, and friends with Tori and Michelle, and I um, run a podcast called Peach Pod on Georgia politics and policy. And so I think they, they're having me on today to sort of add some political context to our discussions that we're going to have. Um, and so I'm excited to get to it. Because as we've always said, we are not a legal, or we are, we are a legal podcast, damn it. <laughs> we are not a political podcast. Yeah. But today we're going to be kind of a political podcast. We're going to get political perspective on things. Yep. It's going to be a great show. <laughs> yep. We have a lot to talk about today. What are we going to talk about today? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about the new Ohio abortion bill that just went up, mm-hmm. which there's a lot going on with that. So we'll spend some time talking about that. Um, And then we're going to move on to discussing a little bit about the Electoral College, um, and we're going to go into all aspects of kind of what it entails and what's going to be coming up in the next week. And faithless electors. Faithless electors, which has become a big thing, especially this last week. So then we're going to end the discussion by talking about the voting recount, which Jill Stein has been initiating. So um, it's going to be a full show. Yeah, you'll get the legal side and the politics side. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, to start, the Ohio state government passed a bill that would have outlawed abortion after six weeks. That's, they chose six weeks, that generally is when the heartbeat appears, and that's why people have been calling it the heartbeat bill. Another bill that was independent of this that just went up was a 20-week ban on, or was a ban on abortions that would take place after 20 weeks. So that's about at the five-month mark. Um, so recently there's a lot of debate over whether or not Kasich would or should veto these bills. He ended up... And who is Kasich? Kasich is the governor of, uh, Ohio, who also was almost our president, arguably. He, he was in the running. <laughs> he was, uh, one of, he was in the Republican primaries and he actually like held on to the end. He was a good contender. Um, he's every liberal's favorite Republican for now. You're actually, yeah, that's until, true. Until we talk about this abortion bill. <laughs> I don't think he will be after that. I mean, he still vetoed part of it. 
he, I feel like every liberal feels exactly the same now as like Kasich's almost there, but not quite. Yeah. Anyway, so he chose to line item veto in the first bill. Uh, he did get rid of the six week abortion. Um, what is a line item veto? So from, from what I know about line item veto in Ohio, so line item vetoes, I think, are more often used on budgetary measures so that governors can strike specific portions of a budget bill when they have a disagreement with the legislature over you know whether or not this program should get funded or not. Um, so in Ohio, the line item veto requires that the governor can strike a very specific provision of a law that passes out of the House and the Senate. Um, but he has to strike a provision that's tied to an appropriation. So it has to fund something. Um, so you can't strike a provision of a law. You, you can't cut out a line of a law that doesn't actually come with an appropriation on it, which is why it's sort of limited to the budget aspect. So what um, John Kasich did and how he sort of split the difference on the two bills was he signed the 20-week abortion ban and then he used his line item veto to veto the provision on the heartbeat bill, the six-week abortion ban. Um, and that's, you know, that's how the line item veto played into it. Interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was almost like a political compromise, even though the five week ban is still pretty rigorous as far as like bans on abortions go. Um, Ohio is not the first person to have this. I think like up to 15 states have similar like bans at the 20 week mark. It's 19. 19. Yeah. We're up to 19. So it's not, it's definitely not unheard of, but it's still like one of the more, um, it's one of the earliest cut. It's one of the earlier cutoffs as far as like abortion regulation goes. Um, so yeah, I feel the need for talking about abortion because we've never really gone into depth about Roe versus Wade on our show. So Roe versus Wade, everyone knows it, right? Like most people who have any sort of policy, um, and it's they one know it as legalizing abortion. I don't think anyone really knows the specifics. Yeah, because it's become such a polarizing topic that mm-hmm. I feel like it's just brought up all the time. Uh, Roe versus Wade actually was a landmark case for a lot of reasons. One reason was that it did say that the right to terminate a pregnancy is a constitutional right. Um, they based that off of an extension of your right of liberty, which is basically just uh, a freedom that the government can't interfere with. This is a really big deal because usually when the court rules, even if they rule that something is illegal, generally they don't say that something is a constitutional right. So this, in theory, puts it on par with something like the Second Amendment. It's saying that like the government cannot interfere. Um, and if they do, it's at the most rigorous level. It's strict scrutiny, which is like very, very hard for the government to regulate. What... Roe versus Wade is a little bit shady on or a little bit gray area is when the state, when the cutoff of when it's legal to ban an abortion. So Roe versus Wade actually in the initial argument said that the first trimester, um, the government on any form, state or federal, cannot regulate um, when an abortion can be terminated or when a pregnancy can be terminated. They said during the second trimester, a pregnancy could be terminated if it was for the health of the mother. So you could regulate it if, like, you could put laws in place if it was intended to protect mothers. And then they said that the third trimester, you could regulate both mothers and fetuses. So that's when it gets into an area where really, through regulation, you could um, make late-term abortions illegal. And that's what most state, that's what a lot of states have done, or they've put some kind of regulations pretty heavily on late-term abortions. 
Casey kind of extended, they made late-term abortions even more of a gray area. Um, they said it was around the 28-week mark. And it's it's complicated because in neither case, the court didn't really rule a bright line. They didn't say this is like definitely when you can terminate an abortion, this is when you can't. Their intention was always supposed to be between a mother and the physician, and they thought that the medical field would have a better grasp on when you should be able to terminate. Um, Casey kind of made it clear, and Roe versus Wade touched on this too, that it more should focus on the viability when the fetus could live outside of um, the mother's womb. When that becomes a possibility, then termination should be off the table. But it's always been a gray area because they've never said something specifically. So even though that was the intention of the court was about the 28-week line, because they left so much gray area, most states have regulated. And um, people like abortion, or not people, and states like abortions can regulate up to like 20 weeks. Um, So yeah, that's the legal side of it. And I always found Roe versus Wade really interesting because it makes it a constitutional right, which also makes it very hard to overturn. And that's why it hasn't been overturned. Um, so Kyle, <laughs> uh, from a political standpoint, why do you think that this law was brought and why do you think Kasich vetoed? Um, so I, I think that there's some interesting politics going on in the state of Ohio and this, um, sort of political conflict is something that has come to, um, you know, really light up politics for states that are getting redder. So when you have, um, less even legislatures between Republicans and Democrats. A lot of the conflict occurs between the party that has a supermajority or near supermajority in power in the state legislature, and Republicans in Ohio have a pretty good, solid control over the legislature in Ohio. So um, part of, you know, when, I, when we decided we talk about this, I was interested in why you have both a six-week ban and a 20-week ban at the same time, and why those both land on the governor's desk at the same time. And the um, description for this, the rationale, according to leaders in the state Senate in Ohio, was that now that Donald Trump had won the presidency and he was going to be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice, that more aggressive anti-abortion policies were going to fly with the courts. Because Um, Kasich has vetoed bills in the past, correct? Or he vetoed a bill in the past because his rationale was the court will strike it down anyway. Right. I think there was a six-week ban that didn't make it out of the legislature last year because he threatened to veto it, and then I think he might have vetoed another one in the past. But, you know, basically the argument from sort of the center right in Ohio was that these, you know, these policies were not um, ones that were going to be accepted by the court. They were going to be a waste of time for the state to defend and that Ohio would be better served or that the, um, the pro-life movement in Ohio would be better served by rallying behind a 20-week ban as opposed to a six-week ban. Um, but sort of the, the political background to this as to why um, I think you ended up with both of these at the same time is because this um, provision came up in a law that was allowed to be um, line-item vetoed by the governor, I think it was put in there by the legislature to basically get legislators on record as to whether or not they would support a six-week ban. Because, you know, the design of the provision basically made it very easy for the governor to say no using the line-item veto. And John Kasich is term-limited in 2018, so there's going to be a Republican primary to run for governor of Ohio in 2018. And a lot of your gubernatorial candidates tend to come out of the legislature. So this is going to put legislators in Ohio on the record as to whether or not they support a six-week ban. 
And if you play this out a little further, if Donald Trump gets more than one Supreme Court justice and the pro-life movement feels really emboldened to try more anti, more aggressive anti-abortion tactics, um, you know, this litmus test on the right about whether you not whether or not you support a twenty-week ban or a six-week ban might be you know sort of the the test that you have to pass to win a Republican primary, and so it might be a signal in the long run over whether. Republicans and the anti-abortion movement in general feel that they are best served by pursuing the overturning of Roe v. Wade on a 20-week ban or being more aggressive and trying trying to pursue the overturning of Roe v. Wade on the six-week ban. When you're saying overturn, um, I actually don't think if a, if a bill like this went up to the Supreme Court, I don't think it would necessarily overturn Roe v. Wade. I think it would severely limit it. In that um, the Supreme Court, like, late-term abortions has always been a gray area. I think it might make late-term abortions illegal. And that's actually, we were talking earlier, if I was a strategist on the right, then I would probably start with a ban like this, a 20-week ban, and then uh, take that up to the Supreme Court. Because I think the chances of them fully overturning Roe versus Wade, like, immediately is, I mean, astronomically small. They don't really it's very, very rare to overturn a court decision that's that important and that has been held out as a constitutional right. Um, And so I think that's, I don't know if it's like the goal of this legislature, legislation like specifically, but I think it's probably banning of late-term abortions will happen over the next four years with the red court. Um, Well, and there certainly is some tension on the right. You know, when you have single-party control of legislatures, you get the restless far wing of a party that doesn't, you know, gets gets upset at the party in power for not moving as quickly as they probably should because they supposedly all have the same goals. And so, um, you know, part of what's interesting to look forward as this moves on is, you know, are the more aggressive tactics effective or are they mistakes where a party in power overreaches and there's a backlash? I mean, at the very least, they got our attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but one thing, the last thing before we move on about this that I really want to make clear is that this, there is gray area on late-term abortions, but 20 weeks there's not really a gray area on. I think like this is pretty clearly unconstitutional, um, and the legislatures know that this wasn't the intent of Roe versus Wade. I think they're intentionally going against Roe versus Wade. Um, just because it's 20 weeks and not six weeks, they're going against the intention of the ruling. So that was one thing that I wanted to make clear before we moved on. Um, yeah. So our next subject of the day, we wanted to briefly discuss uh, faithless electors because a really interesting case actually um, has been unfolding over the next over the past few weeks, and there is a ruling on it um, just yesterday, I think. But so before we get into that lawsuit and a few other issues about the electoral college, Kyle, our political expert, is going to explain what the electoral college is. Sure. Um, <laughs> So within the Constitution, there's a two-step process for electing a president. Um, the, the first step happens on Election Day in November when each state holds an election and um, the popular vote in each state determines the number of electors that will go to the person who won each state. Um, and so this, is, this isn't necessarily binding in the beginning. Um, you know, The second step comes when the electors that are pledged to the candidate who won the state go to their respective state capitals sometime in December. Uh, this year it's happening on December 19th. 
and then they make a decision about whether or not to contribute their votes based on the result of the popular vote in their state. And if so, they transmit those votes from the state legislature to the Congress. The Congress receives the electoral vote total um, from each state and then ratifies that election result, and then you have a president after that. Um, So what you see on election night when you're watching the election returns is actually the number of electors on the state, which you see on these maps that all the networks use, those are the electors that should be pledged to the candidate who wins the state. Um, Technically, that isn't finalized until December. Now, typically, what's happened in most elections is the electoral college's vote that happens in December is actually just a rubber stamp of each state's individual state-by-state popular vote. Um, So usually the outcome of the election that you find on the first Tuesday in November um, stays the same between the first step and the second step. Which begs the question, what's the point of the electoral college? So theoretically, this is laid out by Thomas Jefferson in Federalist Number 68. He writes that um, the Electoral College is actually a compromise that was come up between different factions that were negotiating the development of the U.S. Constitution. Um, And basically, the idea is there was a tension at the time between allowing a full popular vote, whereby you know, the vote of every person eligible to vote in the United States was going to be all added up, and whoever won more votes was going to be president. There were people who were skeptical of using the popular vote that felt that a popular vote would lead to demagogues winning the White House and that there should be a proper check on the will of the people to elect their president. And so, you know, the people who felt, the people who were on the other side of this, they actually wanted the president to be selected by the House of Representatives. And so there's this compromise where the Electoral College is sort of the body that's supposed to stand in between the popular vote, but is also not the same body that makes legislation. Um, So theoretically, the Electoral College is supposed to provide a check on the will of the people as pursued by the popular vote. But, you know, more realistically, as it's been, um, as it's occurred over history, the popular vote is usually just ratified, or the state-by-state popular vote is just ratified by the Electoral College. So are they allowed to not vote with their state then? Um, So they, theoretically they are. Um, I know we're going to talk about some of the state-by-state laws that regulate what electors are allowed to do, but sort of in the theoretical model, um, yes, the electors could vote against the will of their state if they felt like their state had chosen a candidate that they didn't feel was fit to be in the White House. Uh, And another thing the Electoral College does, too, is it makes sure, because it gives certain states more power, which is arguably good or bad, but it makes sure that the candidates don't just focus on places with higher population, correct? Because then... um, in theory, the president really would only have to care about high-populated places like California um, or maybe the coast where like, you could win just based on those votes, right? Yeah, theoretically that's the case. It does lend a little bit more power to rural states. Um, you, part of that also occurs because the larger states have um, very, they're very polarized. California is a very blue state. Texas is a very red state. So there isn't a lot of value in candidates campaigning there anyways. So you get a little bit of that from the way partisan populations are distributed, and you get a little bit of that from the structure of the Electoral College. And because there's also a different way where swing states get a little bit too much attention, uh, arguably. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, th- thank you for that rundown of the Electoral College. <laughs> it's been an issue. I feel like it's something that a lot of people are angry about, but not everyone understands. <laughs> so um, the case that we were talking about then this week was um, a group of electors in Colorado, actually, which went blue. And the ones that brought this lawsuit are um, Democrats. And they're not like pretending to be Democrats. They're real Democrats. But they're arguing that they actually don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. They're part of the states that are uh, they're bound by law. They have to vote with the popular vote. But they're saying that they want to break away because they actually want to find a compromise candidate. Mm-hmm. And so this would be somebody like Kasich, maybe even Pence, somebody like basically anyone besides Donald Trump, where they could say, well, we get it. You know, Hillary's not going to win, but we'll put someone else in power instead, somebody who's a who we see as more fit. So that's what they are currently, that was what their lawsuit was trying to do. Um, So they weren't just trying to not vote for Hillary Clinton. They probably would have voted for a Republican, even though they're not Republicans, which I found really interesting. So they did, they brought this case. They were trying to make, they initially brought it as just an injunction. So that way they could vote either way and they weren't bound. And then there would have been a full hearing over it. The judge essentially shut down their injunction um, in a way that was pretty... He wasn't very happy about the fact that they brought the lawsuit anyway. He had a few choice words with how they brought it. but So that was shot down, and uh, that probably is going to set a precedent that most electors that are bound to the popular vote by state law, they have to vote now. So f- you were mentioning that there might have been some political reasons why they, they did this, correct? Yeah, and actually in this moment I realized, because so they call themselves the Hamilton electors, and so they're actually named after Alexander Hamilton, who wrote that Federalist paper, not Jefferson. Um, but yeah, so the political rationale is that the these electors who are bound to Hillary Clinton per the state results in Colorado, they want to convince all of the Democrats, all the all the electoral voters who are bound to vote for Hillary Clinton, to all get together and join with 37 electors that are bound to Donald Trump and nominate a compromise candidate. Now, the reason that it's interesting that we you know, had John Kasich in the first segment is that throughout the presidential primary, John Kasich was sort of every Democrat's favorite Republican. And there are some reasons for him to be. He's had some moderate policy positions on health care that other Republicans haven't had, um, abortion not being one of them. But, you know, now this this strategy is contingent on convincing all of the Democrats to support somebody like John Kasich and getting 37 Republicans to join them to basically keep Trump out of the White House. Um, that's the, that's the overarching you, political goal. Do you think that's what they're doing? Because I almost feel like maybe if they could just convince, if they could say I'm voting for Kasich and just convince, let's say, 40 of the Republican electors not to vote for Trump, then it would go to the House. Do you think maybe that that's more realistically what they're trying to do? So that's, I think, is a lesser goal for them. Um, so the, the way the Electoral College works is you need to have a majority of electoral votes, which is 270, to be elected to the White House. And if no candidate in the race gets 270 electoral votes, then the election is thrown to the House of Representatives. Now, I don't actually think that the outcome would be any different if the election ends up in the House. So this would be a way for the Electoral College to just register their discontent with the electoral results without actually changing them. Um, Because, you know, 
Republicans in the Congress, I think, don't have an incentive to put anybody else besides Trump in the White House. They have to face voters. Their voters overwhelmingly voted for Trump during the presidential election when Trump would say or do crazy things. And, you know, you would look to these Republicans to try to put a check on their own nominee. None of them really wanted to do it because their voters were Trump voters. Um, so that that is the other option for them. Um but I think their you know their bigger goal would be to unite around somebody like Kasich. Cool, good analysis. <laughs> More important question though: Have both of you listened to the Alexander Hamilton musical? Oh my gosh, it's so good! It's the guy so that good. wrote it is insane. He's very smart. He's incredible. incredible. Can I play a snippet of that? Okay. <laughs> on our show, I was thinking about that. This is not an advertisement for Hamilton, no, although it is fantastic. But Kyle said Hamilton electors, and I just like freaked out. It like got stuck in my head. Does he have a song about the Electoral College? <laughs> I wish. I don't think he has a song. No, I've listened to the whole thing. It's not the Electoral College, but gosh, have you not heard it? No, I've heard parts Wait, play of it. my favorite one. Oh, I'm going to play your favorite one. Good. Uh-huh. But I'm going to fast forward it to the Alexander Hamilton part. <sighs> Every day while slaves were being slaughtered, and steel, borrow, or barter. was great, and he broke his first This has got to violate some copyright laws. No. But I, I just want to play the Alexander Hamilton part on the show. <laughs> this is more of like an advertisement for Hamilton. And Think about great. Wait, hold on. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you Okay, so basically everyone should go see that musical, right? Also, I don't know if you guys remember, but one night when we were all hanging out, the guy who wrote this musical <laughs> performed in front of Obama, and I made you guys listen to that performance, which is also amazing, so go YouTube that. Uh, apparently this happened in Do you guys totally not remember this? I don't remember this. It was during True American, which accounts for the memory loss. <laughs> We should not cut this part out. I think it's I don't hilarious. Think I'm going to. Okay, because like number one, like True American's amazing, True and everyone should play it. Ever. And yes, Michelle like gets props because she discovered Alexander Hamilton before all of us and tried to get us all inspired. And, and you all forgot. It just took so. me a couple months, and then I found the musical on Spotify. Actually, no, it was the Trump debacle. Mm. Is when I was like, "What is Hamilton the musical?" And then I was like. <laughs> What is Hamilton the musical? Like, it's amazing. It's on Broadway right now, and the tickets are like $1,400 each. They're I know. So it's expensive. insane. And there's a really a long shame. waiting list. Yeah, a really long waiting list. Yeah. So, so good for him. So boycott Hamilton so this that way we can get tickets. No, it's yes. nothing to do. But you said the word Hamilton, and you can't expect an opening like that without <laughs> me like diving into the Hamilton musical. Also, Trump hates Hamilton, the play, because... Yeah. Um, so does Mike Pence. Yeah, so does, well, he actually didn't care as much as Trump did. Yeah, he was he just like, eh, I don't really care. He might so that's another reason more. to love it he and go see it. He just doesn't tweet about it. Like, we don't know Mike Pence's and also, every thought he, or feeling. Didn't he a couple of times just be like, I don't care? He, like, straight up was like, I don't care. This does not matter to me. Basically. Which he shouldn't. Yeah, because, like, him. who actually cares? Yeah, exactly. Plus, Hamilton's amazing. He probably just enjoyed the show. He was probably, <laughs> he was probably like, incredible. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Very good show. No, yeah, so you should go listen to that tomorrow. It's like... Lose. It's like a whole the song "Lose Yourself" when you just get like really pumped and you're like, "Yeah, maybe I'm the only one who has who Eminem has <laughs> oh, that no. effect on." I love Eminem. It's like Girl that Eminem. only about the founding fathers and a whole musical about it where you just get pumped. You're like, "Yeah, I can do anything." 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that did sound like we were advertising. Whatever. It's amazing. Just go, just go watch it. We don't have advertisements on our podcast anyway. Well, a good, a good strategy for the Electoral College would be to play Hamilton for them prior to their vote. Yeah. And then maybe they'd feel better about America and be like, we need to save our country. Get yeah. pumped up. Go Hamilton. New political strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think we have another topic to cover besides Hamilton. Have we covered faithless electors? Yeah. Well enough. Do you have do any we want to do the theoretical electoral college discussion here? Oh, yeah. Let's do the theoretical electoral college discussion. Okay. So the thing that I find interesting about the electoral college from a political perspective isn't necessarily sort of the laws and rules that they're bound by, but it's sort of this theoretical notion that the electoral college is supposed to be a check on the vote of people in the United States. Um And I think what's come up as we sort of try to work through whether Trump is a normal candidate, a normal president or not, is, you know, should we rely on the tools, the checks and balances that we have in our system to, you know, to try to stop Trump? And if so, what is the cost of doing that? Because I think one of the things in political science is that there are rules and laws that govern the system that we're in, and then there are norms that usually fill in the gaps where you really can't make rules and laws. And, you know, Trump himself is a candidate who kind of breaks down political norms. He broke down a lot of norms around political discourse, um, but they've also broken down institutionally in places like the Senate. And so before we did this, we were having this discussion about whether or not if the Electoral College had the ability to keep Trump from getting into the White House, should they do it? Um, And I am going to confess my unpopular opinion by saying that I'm not actually sure in the long run it would actually be good for the federal system of government that we have for the Electoral College to take the election away from Trump at this point. And I think that for me that that argument is grounded in norms pretty pretty heavily. Um, you know, Trump got almost as many votes as a typical Republican did. Um, he ran his, you know, his the outcome of his political map has been in line with a lot of recent Republican maps, except in places where he made gains in the upper Midwest. And Hillary Clinton ran an entire campaign on trying to prove that Trump was unfit for office. Um, Part of what I believe the Electoral College is there to do is to basically issue a ruling on whether or not the voters have elected somebody who they believe to be fit for office. And Hillary Clinton prosecuted this case against him during the campaign, and she ended up losing, um, largely because Republicans, who would have been the ones to defect from Trump if they had bought this case, they actually did not really defect from him at all. And so I think it would be, while I think I would prefer that Trump not be president, I think in the long run, for the Electoral College to kind of make the argument that Trump is not fit after we had an election that was really based very specifically around that question could do a lot of damage to the institutions that we have. Part of what I might think could come out of this is that Republicans in the past have shown basically no hesitation to try to stack the the deck for themselves in terms of the way elections are run, you know, all of these different systems that are in American government. They pursue voting restrictions. They pursue voter ID laws. They, um, you know, are very aggressive with redistricting to basically get the voters that they want. And to me, if, if this norm breaks down that the Electoral College is not a rubber stamp on the state-by-state popular vote, it does open up the Electoral College to being politicized. 
and basically nullifies what you're supposed to get out of it, which is the check, sort of the break glass in case of emergency. And it just becomes another political battlefield where both parties have an incentive to try to structure the way that it works in a way that benefits their own candidates. Because, see, this is where me and Kyle disagree a little bit. I think, like, actually in theory, because do I think whether or not the Electoral College should vote for or against Trump is, like, the answer to me is, like, I'm not sure and I don't know. But I would respect their decision either way. Because if you're going to have the Electoral College, which is, it imbalances vote. My vote as somebody in D.C., because it's such a left-leaning state, it's not going to matter as much as somebody in Florida or Wisconsin or somebody who's actually going to turn the tables of the election. And so the result of that is you are putting a lot of power, you're putting more power into the hands of few. And when you put power into the hands of few, whenever like somebody in swing states, their voice and opinion matters, then I think you should have a check on them. And to me, the Electoral College is an appropriate check. And so... Whether or not I think this is a situation where, as you put it, like, break glass in case of the emergency, I don't know. But in the same way, like, if I'm a congressman and the Supreme Court overrules a bill I pass, I have to respect that. If I'm a voter and the elector and the electors vote against what I wanted, I think you have to respect that, too, because that's another—it's checks and balances. So whether or not—I think— if this case warrants it, I would actually make the argument in a lot of ways, maybe it does. But I, I'm not sure I would leave that up to the electors. My, to wrap my thought on that, my hesitation on that, you know, sort of the expectation that voters should respect the outcome of the Electoral College. Um, so Electoral Colleges aren't new or they weren't new to the U.S. Constitution when they were put in. Medieval governments had, you know, basically these bodies of electors that they tried to um, you know, legitimize sort of quasi-democracies by saying that there was a group of people that would choose a leader. But if you had outcomes of the Electoral College vote that went against popular sentiments in the country, you had this happen in um, for some of the papal elections of a long time ago. The College of Cardinals would you know get together and vote for a pope. But if you had somebody who was less popular win this um, electoral college vote, you would have these sort of governments in exile or anti-popes that would um, basically try to claim some sort of formal authority because they were the, you know, the, the people's choice or whatever. Um, you know, obviously I don't think you would have a Trump government that's in exile, but Trump is somebody who has, you know, is really savvy with the media when he was, you know, figured he would lose this election. There was this discussion over whether or not he would try to start his own media empire and from a political perspective, we've seen big influences from the way people consume media and how their political beliefs are shaped. And so I think that you know you play a little bit of a dangerous game if you try to take the presidency away from Trump and he has a big group of followers that um, you know can sort of go into this other informal institution in a media environment and be um, sort of an anti-government. I also, whether or not the electors change, though, I think you play a dangerous game of not flirting with the idea of it. Because what if Trump rises to power and is a huge success, and the next person who comes up is even more dangerous or dictator-like? Then I actually think you should have um, that check firmly in place and ready to go. 
and be like, you know, this is not the norm. Like, we almost did it here. Like, faithless electors did happen in other chances. It wasn't enough to swing, but we've never had a situation this serious. So, I don't know. That... That's my view, but also one of the few times that we've kind of disagreed on anything. We usually have a different approach, but we reach the same conclusion on political issues. But I would yeah. say neither of these are good choices. We didn't really do a very good job this time of giving ourselves good choices. I, for one, don't think we should have an electoral college. So. I mean, it's There's an interesting argument, yeah. I don't see that they're doing much. But anyways, <laughs> um, shall we move on? Yes. Are we good with that? We shall. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about, there's been a lot of talk lately about the vote recount. Um, so I'm going to try and keep this brief because nothing really came of it, but I think it's important just to touch on. We touched on this once before, um, when we had our third episode, um, what was that called again? How to Trump the Election. That's right. I mean, simpler times, simpler times when we are all obsessed with the election. (laughs) Yeah. How to be young again. Okay. But anyways, so I talked a little bit about the Gore v. Bush case. So I wanted to revisit this again. This has obviously been in the news a lot. So on Friday, November 5th, um, Green Party candidate Jill Stein made the announcement that she would be requesting a recount in Wisconsin. Um, She did this after there were reports that several counties reported more votes than ballots received. Um, which obviously shows that there's been voting fraud. Um, these counties adjusted their numbers based on this, and they it ended up based on just what they found. It dropped Trump's lead by 5,000 votes. So, um, so it went from roughly 27,000 votes ahead of Clinton to just 22,000, um, which obviously isn't significant enough to affect the results of the election, but if there was just that big of a discrepancy between the number of votes received and um, the number of votes received and the number of votes ac- accounted for, it led to thinking that there was a larger a larger problem. So because of that, she called for a recount, citing that there were instances of fraud. Um, and since then, she's also called for a recount in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Just so you know, in um, Wisconsin, Clinton was leading, or Trump was leading Clinton by 27,000 votes. In Pennsylvania, Trump beat Clinton by about 44,000 votes. Um, And then in Michigan, Trump defeated Clinton by 10,700 votes. So these are the three states she um, decided to ask for a recount in. Also, this is also notable, although not not very notable, only slightly noticeable. There were two other states where recounts were requested. Um, One in Nevada, an independent party candidate known as Rocky De La Fuente, which I hadn't even heard of before this. Um, He initiated a recount in several Nevada country or counties. Sorry. Um, And in Nevada, Clinton defeated Trump by about 27,000 votes. Um, and then in Florida, this is the last one, and this was more a more recent one. In Florida, three Florida voters sued for a recount, claiming that Clinton actually won Florida um, due to hacking, malfunctioning voting machines, and other problems. Um, so they wanted a hand recount vote of every paper vote in in Florida, which is pretty insane because um, Trump beat Clinton in Florida by 112,000 votes. So that's pretty significant. Um, so just before we like go into this too much, I wanted to ask you, Kyle, um, 
why is Jill Stein even asking for a recount in states where um, Clinton um, lost when there was no chance of Jill Stein ever winning in the first place? She actually received um, about 1% of the popular vote nationwide, so it seems kind of silly that she'd be asking for this in the first place. So I think there's two narratives around Jill Stein at this point. I think the first one that is, I think, what her argument would be is that there are systemic problems with the infrastructure that we use for voting in the United States, and it leaves it open to fraud. And if we don't perform regular recounts or regular audits of the vote, then these things could go on and we may never know. Um, In a recent appearance on Fox News Sunday, she went through sort of a litany of previous examples where she thought that there was a case that there might be some fraud, but these cases weren't picked up in the courts or recounts weren't done. And so we haven't really definitively proved that we have a foolproof election system. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence to support this case, but I know her and and her followers would make it. Um, The other piece of this where a lot of the criticism for Jill Stein is coming in is that she's raising money for these efforts. She's building up an email list of supporters based on these donations that she's soliciting. And so this is a self-serving exercise for Jill Stein to build up her political profile, build up the profile of the Green Party that she has been the leader of for the past two elections, um, and to try to make this into a political advantage for her. Um, I think that these are two... Separate. I think they have to be taken as two separate arguments. I think you know Stein. If she goes through the legal avenues that she has, she certainly can you know raise these questions about the electoral infrastructure that we have. I mean, I think if you get to this point and you find very little evidence, then you have to kind of conclude that her assertions are incorrect. Um, but certainly, I think she has the right to do that. The question of whether or not she's using this for political benefit for herself, I think is a separate one. And one I don't think can detract from the other in terms of the legitimacy of the claims that Stein is making. Okay, so um, before we continue, let's just talk a little bit about what a voting recount is. So usually it's when a losing presidential candidate um, requests a state or certain counties within a state to um, hand count the ballots. Ballots are traditionally counted on a machine. I think in all the states they're counting on a machine. So um, most states, though, each state has their own laws in place for when a voting recount can be requested or granted. Um, But most of them um, require whoever is requesting to allege that there's been a mistake or fraud committed or that there's been some other defect where the recount is necessary. Um, So most states, if the margin between the winning candidate and the next one down is low enough, then a lot of the times they'll order the recount themselves or they'll just do it automatically um, or they'll just grant the, the recount pretty, pretty easily. However, if the margin's larger than that, as it was in all of these states, it's going to be a little bit more of a process, which it turned out to be here. Um, and oftentimes it ends up costing a lot of money to the person requesting it, as it again did here. Um, I don't really want to go into too much. We can touch on it briefly. Um, we'll probably do that more towards the end. But Jill Stein, as Kyle said, um, definitely has fundraised a lot of money 
for efforts to get recounts in these three states. And um, the last time I saw, she was up to about $7.2 million, um, which is a significant amount of money, um, considering that was more than she got for her entire campaign, I think. It's an insane amount. Um, So we'll go into a little bit about why asking for a recount costs so much money and what what all that money is going towards. Um, So... Let's first talk about, I mean, I talked about in the earlier episode kind of what the different states generally, um, what their laws are. Um, Like I said, they're all really different. So we'll start with Michigan. So in Michigan, um, if the margin is the margin between the winning candidate and the next one down is set at 2,000 votes or less, so it's not a percentage, but if the margin is 2,000 votes or less, um, then regardless of, of... Regardless of who requests the recount, they will. They, you don't have to file a lawsuit. You don't have to petition the court. They'll just do it. Um, and then that's usually it's always going to be the cheapest option to if the margin of error is the lowest. It's always going to be the cheapest because you don't have to file a lawsuit, and the state will really um, help initiate those proceedings and kind of take on a lot of the costs themselves. Um, so for Michigan, any candidate or voter may petition for a recount. Um, and then if the there's more than 2,000 votes, then the candidate, which in this case was Jill Stein, can ask for a recount, but they'll most likely say no. And then at that point, you'll have to file a lawsuit, which she did. We're going to go into the results of that in just a second. But um, at that point, you have to petition the courts and the courts have to file an injunction, which would then force the election officials to go through the recount process. Um, So the next state is Wisconsin. These are similar laws. They're just slightly different. Um, I think Wisconsin had um, a margin of error under 0.05%. So if the margin or the margin of difference between the winning candidate and the next one down is 0.05% or less, then you can request a recount and they'll automatically do it. Otherwise, you have to petition through the court process, um, which again is what she had to do there. Um, and then the last one is Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, the election official has to order a recount. If there's um, if there's a discrepancy found or if the vote margin is less than or equal to 0.5%, then the election officials do it. So at no point is are the voters or the candidates allowed to petition for this in Pennsylvania. However, if the election officials choose not to do to do a recount, then you can petition the court to try and force them to. Um, and then there are different laws in place for how much it would cost, and usually that depends on the margin, as I just said. I don't know if y'all know this, but Jill Stein actually used to have like a rock band about environmentalism. <laughs> Spoiler alert, she's not very good. <laughs> But her songs are hilarious. But yeah, this was a real thing that Jill Stein used to do. I'll play you a snippet. Anyway, that was Jill Stein's rock group about environmental issues. How did she not win every state? <laughs> <I don't laughs> she should know. have just played that as her campaign. On a music tour. I'm honestly mm-hmm. just kind of 
shocked that more people don't know about that because it's such like a bizarre <laughs> well, thing. Well, in like, all fairness, not a lot of people knew about her. That's true. A lot of pe- more people know about her after the recount, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So Which, I guess that works. Might be. Yeah. Maybe, maybe all this is to start her music career. Oh <laughs> man, the second coming of Jill Stein, dude. Like. Best like best way to start a music career ever. Like best thing I've ever heard. It's almost like Trump's would be media career if he hadn't won the president. She should probably step up her game. Yeah, She's no. gonna start touring. Yeah. So the electoral college is going to meet, and all the electors' votes have to be in by December nineteenth, which is in six days. It's um, next Monday. I don't I think. even know what the date is right now. Yeah. Next Monday. Yeah, next okay. Monday. <laughs> Thank you. But not I'm as important back to you guys. as the 17th, which is Kyle's birthday. That's true. The more important date of the next coming days. <laughs> so all the votes had to be in by today, so the recount is now over. Um, Didn't they already call it in a couple states, by the way? I think, like, Wisconsin was already called. Yes. Okay. It was. It was, actually. All yeah. of them, we kind of knew where the results were last week um, or what was going to happen, which... Spoiler alert, was nothing. Um, so what happened in Michigan? Jill Stein petitioned the district court to to um, issue an injunction forcing Michigan State, the election officials in Michigan State, to do a recount, and they actually granted it. And so the recount was underway in Michigan for three days, but then it was appealed twice, and it made it up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court halted that and said the recount is off um, and immediately dismissed it. Um, so the district court judge um, issued the Henry count of 4.8 million votes. The reason the Supreme Court overruled it and, and caused the recount to stop is because they found that Jill Stein was not aggrieved and had no chance of winning the state's presidential vote if the recount was allowed to move forward because she only won 1.1% of the state's 4.8 million votes. So... Um, you know, it probably would have would have gone a different way if Clinton had had um, asked for the recount. Um, so, oh yeah, I found this interesting. So the Supreme Court ruled three two against Stein, and the majority justices were Republican nominated, while the dissenting justices were Democratic nominated. But um, two of the High Court justices recused themselves from the case because they were on President Elect Donald Trump's shortlist. Of potential justices to be nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, huh. two of them just abstained from voting. Hmm. Um, so the three days that this was going on, Isn't his list though is like currently like it's like thirty it's justices long. So it's I don't like, really think he knows what he's doing. Of course, there's so. like going to be a couple there. You yeah, know? no surprise. Mm-hmm. Like there's a couple in every state. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's all part of his plan. What's part of his plan? How is that part of his plan? The long list of justices? Well, because things like this happen, and oh, he's okay. going to have advocates in every state. That's a long-term plan. Like, yeah. Just in case there's I mean, a recount. short-term, too. Oh, maybe. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. But any issue that goes up. Oh, well, yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although they recuse themselves. Yeah. So it's still This helps. is a bigger part of the plan. We're formulating a bigger conspiracy, Kyle. You're thinking too short-term and rational. No, I think it'd be a liability. If, they're, if he's brought all these people into his tent and said, I might choose you for the Supreme Court. He's only going to get to choose maybe one or two of them. But like, but they don't know that. He'll keep them on the street for a while. He'll like hold them out with like the hope that some other one might die. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) With the hope and dream that another justice dies. I'm just thinking it could have cost him a ruling in one of these states if he'd have picked enough people in one state to 
have many of them recuse themselves and change. Because they're in competition with one another? I don't understand. Kind well, of. No, He's I just mean, saying it would swing the vote because they're all going to yeah, be Republicans. Because some so of them if there's enough vote. Democrats on one side. Then. Well, no, but if this had been something that would have favored him, the reason they recused them, uh, I guess that's true. Yeah. I feel like if this had if this had been something that would have favored him, yes, like if it they wasn't would not something... have recused themselves. No, th- yeah, that's if true. If this was an issue that actually like would have helped him in the end, they wouldn't have recused themselves. No, I think that's interesting. And also like when you shortlist somebody, then I feel like even if you don't choose them, they owe you favors. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that is interesting. So during the 3 days that this recount was going in, Um, There's a lot of focus on what happened in Detroit, which is really interesting. So Michigan, if you look at a state map, it was overwhelmingly red, except in the Detroit area. What is that? Wayne's County, I think. Um, So in that county, that was the only one that was, I mean, there were a couple other that were a little bit blue, but this one was that had won the Democratic vote, had voted for Clinton. Um, Well, during this three-day recount, they found some... um, discrepancies i guess in the votes in that in that district in that they found that some of the votes had been counted twice mm-hmm. and that was in favor of clinton but clarify because was was this a large number of votes we don't actually know <laughs> probably not but they did say um the number of ballots mm-hmm. in in many okay so they said if in 59% of the precincts in Detroit, the ballots did not match the what was on the machine printout reports. So in 392 of the 662 precincts, the ballot number didn't match the voting. So there was, it had been, it had happened in quite a lot of these precincts. However, mm-hmm. later on, they did come out and say, that the numbers were only off by one or two ballots. Um, we don't really know how accurate it is. Obviously, as I said, it got stopped after three days, mm-hmm. so they don't really know. Um, but it is kind of interesting that everyone was kind of, the whole reason for this recount, I feel like, is everyone was expecting a little bit of um, voting fraud leaning towards the right, and we got it on the left. So as you can imagine... But even though it was only off by one or two ballots, I can just see the Breitbart headlines already. And they were. They did go crazy. That's why I saw it so much. I was like looking at all these were news you, sources. Were you and they Breitbart were... a lot today? Is well, that... no. <laughs> but I saw a lot of right-wing news sources and I was like, uh, I don't know if I believe it. And then I like did a little bit deep, deeper digging and they weren't completely false. Sometimes I like going to Breitbart because it feels like stepping into Oz a little bit. <laughs> And, like, the comment section, it's almost like Reddit if Reddit was, like, on drugs. Like, the comment section is, like, people just go crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. If, <laughs> but Reddit's already a scary enough place. I don't know why I'm going no, on this tangent. It makes me nervous. I don't like those sites. Going into Breitbart? Yeah. Or going to Reddit? Know. It just, like, unsaid. It makes me a little anxious. So I don't. Even just, like, visiting? Even just visiting. Even just being in this world is, like, (laughs) not the world in which I inhabit. I'm like, I don't think I belong here. This is... Reddit's a democratic. Like, it's pretty... It's pretty blue. It depends on... It depends on your... Your... Subreddit? Well, okay, if you just go into... This is... We're advertising a lot of things today. I like Reddit. Like, get on Reddit. What? I know that you love Reddit. I love Reddit. I know you love Reddit a lot. try saying something like, I love Trump on there, and see what happens. You'll get crucified. Try saying something like, I love Hillary on there. You will also get crucified. The Reddit community, what I've learned about Reddit, is just people just really like being mean on Reddit. 
Yeah. Like, people freak out on Reddit. They, especially, like, politics. Like, you will get, like, crazy stuff either way. But Reddit is also hilarious and very clever. It's filled with clever people. It is really good. I find it very entertaining. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> um, so then let's talk about what happened in Pennsylvania. Um, a federal judge in Pennsylvania rejected Jill Stein's request for a complete re- vote recount. So that didn't get very far at all. As I said, none of the um, margins in any of these three states she requested got anywhere close enough to where the elect- election officials just went ahead and granted it. So she had to file a lawsuit in each of these states, which is actually why the expenses added up. That's why it was so expensive for her to request a recount is because the cost of attorneys and attorney's fees and the lawsuits and the court fees, it all just added up and it became really expensive. Not to mention the cost to um, pay people's salaries to do the entire vote recount. And it was just a lot of things. But in Pennsylvania, the district court judge, his name's Paul Diamond, which is a pretty cool name. That is a cool name. I wish that was my name. <laughs> you wish your name was Paul. Um, oh, Paul Diamond. I imagine you more like a star. <laughs> like a star diamond. Like Tory Star? Yeah. That sounds more like a porn name. But I, I was like just going to say, it sounds <laughs> a little porny. Um, anyways, Paul Diamond, he issued a 31-page decision saying that there were at least six legal reasons that required him to reject Stein's request um, to have a recount. A couple of them, he said that He said that her suspicion that Pennsylvania's election was hacked borders on their rational. Um, He also said that he said that there's no way it could happen given Tuesday's deadline. Um, He said there's no credible evidence that any hack occurred. Um, There's no evidence that it was any way compromised. And then he said that she lacked standing because, um, yeah, yeah. She you know what would have been the decision of the year, though, is mm-hmm. if, like, he laid out all of those arguments and then, like, just to, like, mess with people, he was like, but you know what? I grant it. Bam. <laughs> like, she's allowed to proceed. anyway. Regardless of all of that, like, I'm still on her side. Just, that would have been great. It's a fantasy. It's the end of the podcast. Course. I'm getting yeah. silly. <laughs> so. We are getting silly. It's been a very silly episode. <laughs> that would have been a repeat of what James Comey did to Hillary Clinton. So. Oh, yeah, where it's like, it was irresponsible, it sucked, but, you know, I'm not a prosecutor. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> I guarantee you there were a bunch of Republicans watching that hearing, and they're like, just give it to me. It's going it, to, yes. it's here. No charges? <laughs> like, what? And no reasonable prosecutor would dare. It's like, what? <laughs> anyway, this is, this is. Getting off up. No, it's okay. Team quickly. <laughs> it's kind of late here, by the way. So we ordered Grubhub earlier, and it took like almost two hours to deliver. So we're a little loopy. And at that point, we both got hangry. Tori yes. might have said some choice words about libertarians, libertarians which then later on, I don't have that strong of feelings about <laughs> it. But I got very angry for a while. Okay. But now we're fed, and now we're happy. Okay. So then, what happened in Wisconsin? That's the last of the state. So in Wisconsin, um, Jill Stein filed a petition just to the election commission. She didn't actually file a lawsuit in this case. And a recount was granted. And that finished up on Monday. And it was incredibly disappointing, actually. So this is the only state where a full petition or a full recount actually went through. And the end results of that was that Trump picked up 125 extra votes. So he's still winning by, I think he ended up winning by... 
A larger um, margin now. Yeah, a larger margin. Yeah. It's It was like 22,000. Now it's like more than it was. So it was very disappointing all in all. Um, so nothing really came of the recounts. All right. And then in Nevada and Florida, as you can imagine, um, there wasn't a lot of support for that and nothing, nothing came of that. So the recount's over. All the votes are in. Nothing changed. And now um, it's going to go to the electors on the 19th next Monday. So, I mean, don't expect too much to change, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, do okay, we, does anyone know this? After the electors vote, do they tell us directly afterward, or does it just go straight to Congress, and then Congress will vote from there? Or will we actually know the electors vote? Um, I don't know if we know the individual. Like, I don't know if they tally the individual votes or not. I mean, Congress will receive a full report from each state, mm-hmm. and then they will ratify a final elector total. Um, so will we know the total, like pretty soon after December 19th? Yeah, I think... Well, nowadays, I think they transmit them instantly. Oh, okay. Um, so I think you would know. We, I think we'll know on December 19th. Okay. I've actually never paid attention because the, that vote has never really meant anything, but I'm pretty sure that we know pretty much instantly. <coughs> yeah. I mean, we pretty much know already anyway. Like, it's not going to change too much mm-hmm. of a margin, but... <clears throat> Anyway, so there was one more thing we wanted to talk about, which was pretty interesting, that um, came about in the last week. Um, so the CIA recently came out, and though they haven't issued the report yet, mm-hmm. they said they were going to by the end of Obama's administration, I believe. But they actually confirmed that um, the CIA, the CIA confirmed that Russia deliberately moved to help um, get Donald Trump elected, which I feel like is. In itself, I, not misleading, but people have been a little bit misleading with reporting on it. Yes. Because there was Russia hacking that we already know of, which was the DNC. But as far as my understanding is, they're not saying they hacked the voting. They no. haven't discovered any new hacking, unless there's something in the CIA report that hasn't been released yet. No, what they said is, they said that it was the Russian government who gave WikiLeaks emails hacked from the DNC um, and top Hillary Clinton aide John Podesta. So they said that they ended up giving information, basically giving information to the press to help persuade the American voters towards Trump. Kyle, what do you think about well, that? Uh, the, so the, the other piece of this is that... Um, the the claim by the CIA that the FBI disputes is that um, the Russian hacker, hackers also hacked the RNC systems and that they have all of this information that they've taken from RNC servers, but that they deliberately did not deliver any of that information to WikiLeaks, who published all of this information. And so that is where they're basing this intelligence assessment on Russia acting deliberately in favor of Donald Trump. But there is some disagreement in the intelligence community about how, um, you know, how sure they are that that was the motive. Um, But I I think it does raise this interesting question of, like, what do we do about it? Um, It seems like something that should have been more alarming from the beginning. That seems to be, like, the theme of everything in this election. Like, it should have been more alarming from the beginning, but, Mm -hmm. like... You know, this isn't the time to change it. Yeah, now it's like, how did we get here? <laughs> um, but now, I, so it does seem like Republicans in Congress are um, interested in you know pursuing an investigation about this. 
and trying to figure out to what extent the Russians actually had any kind of impact on this election, I think it's really difficult to weigh out whether or not they had an impact where it actually changed the electoral outcome. Um, you know, a lot of this, you know, drip, drip, drip of email issues that sort of just kept continuously reported by the media um, sort of plagued Hillary Clinton in her ability to stick to a message when she had felt like she had to defend herself against this all of the time. Um, but I'm not sure that this was the issue on the top of minds of voters or, you know, it was something that contributed to an existing perception about Clinton that may or may not have stood either way. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what you do about it, but you also now have a president in the White House who made it very clear that, you know, if, if Putin was going to say nice things about Trump, Trump was going to say nice things about Putin. Um, Trump, had policies that are in line with Russia's desire to destabilize institutions in the Western world, things like Trump's desire to withdraw from NATO or to demand compensation from other NATO allies if we have to, um, you know, come to their defense. So I don't think Russia is sad about the outcome, but in terms of like what you do or what we should do as a country, I think it's kind of unclear. So you're not as much of a conspiracy theorist as some. I mean, I don't. I don't think that they, in terms of like, did it actually sway the results? I don't know. I've heard like a lot of. I I don't believe this at all. But you know, like Donald Trump has Russian ties, and then his Secretary of State has like a lot of business ties with Russia. I've heard a lot of people make the claim that maybe there was like some kind of, I don't know, conspiracy. Collusion. Yeah, like, but I think, I don't know, that would take a lot of, or my issue with conspiracy theories generally are people usually aren't that organized and it would take like such a big scale and like so many people keeping quiet. So I, I'm generally skeptical of conspiracy theories. I don't think Trump being in power is bad for the Russian government though. No, and I agree. I think it's more just like on the surface, kind of what you just explained. Like, yeah, they might have tried to sway it by hacking and doing like what's obvious but the at the end of the day the american people just took that information mm-hmm. and made a choice yep. yeah yeah I, I mean it's certainly preferable for the russians so hillary was um you know pretty well known for her more aggressive stance toward russia there was some reporting i saw that said that hillary actually really very personally disliked vladimir putin um and hillary you know, was judged, especially by Democratic voters, to have more hawkish tendencies than Barack Obama did either. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is certainly preferable for them, but I'm not sure that they're... I mean, th- this. I don't think it signifies some, like, rise to power for Russia or anything like that. Um, I think it just sort of muddles. In the same way that uh, the rise of... Um, white nationalist movements and a lot of other Western democracies have just kind of like muddled what has been progress towards like a more cosmopolitan Western world. Um, I think it's just, you know, that progress is somewhat muddled and makes us look less exceptional, um, which I think was a a problem for Russian legitimacy in the past. All right. I think that's all we have for you. 
Yeah. Um, so we want to really thank you, Kyle, for joining us yeah. on our show. On Thanks our show. for having me. Yeah. And everyone should go check out Peach Pod. It's a really cool podcast. And you get to hear Kyle's voice more. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, if you like our show, you should subscribe to us on iTunes. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review. You can send us an email at supremebenchwarmers at gmail.com. You can ask us any questions or suggestions for um, legal analysis that you'd like to hear on the show. Uh, we also have our website, supremebenchwarmers.com, if you have any questions or concerns. And if, Play your side-off song. Oh, yeah. Since this seems to be like our musical episode... <laughs> So go listen to Hamilton. Go listen to Hamilton, more importantly. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, anyways, thanks for tuning in. Bye, guys.